I may have mentioned before that in the 1970s, my father was the head of a union. He was the president of the nation's largest teachers union, and as such, found himself at odds with the political right, in particular, the religious right. Uh, my liberal father was disparaged by the Jerry Falwells of the world, called out by name, oftentimes on television. Others in the religious right said just horrible, awful things about he and a friend of his who was a friend of our family who happened to be a really dynamic Christian. And the experience of having my father walk through that played no small role in my academic research into um, Ronald Reagan's religious rhetoric and that of the religious right. See, the approach of the religious right in the 1970s and 80s was that they were going to use earthly power and seize it to bring about what they perceived was spiritual transformation in our culture. Now, fortunately for my family, God began to work in the lives of the Ryer kids, all six of us, through friends that genuinely cared for us. Uh, one by one, my sisters and I began to understand the gospel, uh, and people, most of them from families with different political philosophies from my parents, played an important role in our understanding of what it meant to love Jesus, what it meant to follow Jesus. And I'm sure somebody was praying for the Ryer kids and the Ryer family. I'm equally as confident that it wasn't the groups in the religious right. And you may say, how do I know that? Well, I know that because for the past 30-something years, I've been an evangelical. For the past two decades, I've been an evangelical pastor, and I've come across a bunch of Christian groups and listened to them talk about the need to mobilize Christians politically to bring about cultural change and political action as a means to saving cultures, and yet I have not once been a part of one of these groups, progressive or conservative, who committed themselves to praying for people with whom they disagreed politically. They, I mean, I don't mean praying that they change their political views and start voting their way. I mean actually praying for them, presuming that their goal was that people would know Jesus. The call of the Christian is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And I'm confident that includes praying for your political opponents that they would genuinely know the grace and love of Jesus, whether or not they adopt your political philosophy or paradigm for government action. I'm assuming that as a Christian, you, your greatest passion would be that people would know Jesus. And I'm assuming that souls mean more to you, more to you than your sense of cultural security. I'm assuming that you're humble enough to recognize that you may be or are likely wrong about some of your political ideals. I'm assuming that we don't believe that everyone has to agree with us in order for them to be our brother or sister in Christ. I say all this because in today's text, we see a change in Jonah's chief opponent. Jonah had distrusted the Ninevites. They were part of the Assyrian Empire that had cruelly persecuted Israel. And the Ninevites' posture towards his people, Israel, kept Jonah from seeing the Assyrian Empire as fellow human beings who needed to know the love of God. Jonah's instinct was to crush his enemies. And when we think about affecting cultural change, I would say I include myself in this. Rarely do we practice what we preach. Namely, 
that God would change powerful people through prayer. If you want to ever check yourself the next time you're daring to watch the news or read a website and somebody says something that you find abhorrent or politically offensive, ask yourself whether or not your follow-up thought is, Jesus, help them to know you. I can't tell you that that has been my pattern, and I say that to my embarrassment. God changes powerful people through prayer. We know this. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Today's passage reminds us again of this truth, that when the power of his Holy Spirit activates God's word, no person is beyond reaching. The king of Nineveh, presumed to be either a governor who might have been called king or more likely the king of the entire Assyrian Empire, was called to repent, and he did. So are we all today. However, before we jump in, I've got to make a couple of notes to you about biblical criticism. Now, in this text, specifically Jonah 3, 1 through 10, there have been historical critics of the Old Testament that just sort of nip and pick at pieces to try to find fault with it, to rob it of its authority. One criticism of this section of Scripture would be that it says it took three days to walk across Nineveh. And in reality, if you look at the historic archaeological walls of Nineveh, it wouldn't have taken that long. But the problem is, is that they're narrowly defining Nineveh. The territories outside the wall were often referred to as Nineveh too, just as the territories around Jerusalem were. It would be the same as us talking about living in Los Angeles, and yet we're really in Los Angeles County. You know, it, it, they're kind of sort of one and the same. Critics have also said that referring to the person who was repenting as the king of Nineveh, as it's the only time that type of phrase is ever used to describe a provincial leader, uh, would be uncommon. And so there, there's something wrong with the text here because the king wouldn't have been the title of the king of Assyria. He would have never called himself the king of Nineveh. Don Carson says the, ter- the term king of Nineveh is really a standard way of referring to a king who ruled over a given part of the empire. For instance, If someone was the king of an entire empire and there was a particularly rebellious city and he was trying to bring that city into line with his agenda, he would remind them, hey, I am the king of this city. I am the king of Nineveh. Now, I mention this because we've said numerous times, be cautious when you find yourself in the position of trying to prove that something is not from God, whether it be scripture or the counsel of others, and just because you don't want to hear what they have to say about your life. That is a great checkpoint for us all. When we start saying, I don't like what the messenger is saying, so let me see if I can discredit the messenger in some way, we have to ask ourselves deeply inside, why is it that we have to resist what this person, or in this case, what scripture might be saying. This gets to the essence of a heart that is humble and contrite, and these are the conditions that are necessary for anyone to take a genuine step of repentance like the king of Nineveh. 
Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17 says this, For you will, de- you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Today we take another look at repentance. We have three different examples of it. Uh, one would be the repentance of Jonah, and then secondly would be the repentance of the people of Nineveh, and then of course the Assyrian king gets word of all this and he has to repent as well, and so we're going to look at him and see what we can pick up about repentance as a subject and hope that in the process we'll have some practical steps, because I know after last week some of us might have said, okay, I know I want to repent, what do I do? And so the, the first thought I have for you this morning is this, repentance requires a step in the right direction. This is what you'll see almost any time somebody is called to repent, there's oftentimes a literal physical step that they will take. Jesus said, come follow me. And if you were actually going to repent, you would literally have to get up on your feet and come and follow him because Jesus was a moving. You know, so you couldn't say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I sit right here and Jesus is somewhere else. If you wanted to be a follower of Jesus, it required a step in the right direction. Look what it says here in verses 6 and 7 of Jonah 3. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. Now, so there's really two parts here. And this is what I want to look at first. The first part, this first step. It's really a religious step. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol. It's, it's him saying, I'm going to do something to reconnect with God. And so he removes his robe. He covers himself with sackcloth, which was a clothing that was of the most impoverished person. So it would be like if you were wearing the most royal garb, a wedding dress, a tuxedo, something of the most formal state. And then you had to take that off and you put on the tattered rags of a homeless person. You'd say, God, I am broken and humble before you. Then to sit in ashes was a way of simply saying, my life has come to this. I am humbled before you. We have, in this case, we have the king doing what Jonah did. In Jonah's case, repentance wasn't just admitting that he was wrong and fleeing to Tarshish. Repentance for Jonah required a first step. And that is always, for every one of us, that first step is always a step towards reconnection with the Father, reconciliation in relationship with the Father. Jonah had to take steps, more steps in the right direction. And you'll see in the weeks ahead, He has to take lots of steps of repentance. It's an ongoing process, as we talked about and Luther mentioned in his 95 Theses. But the initial step of repentance for all of us is to say, we want to rely on God again. Jonah, his steps in the right direction, now we're seeing him walking into Nineveh and proclaiming the word of the Lord. For his repentance to be genuine, there had to be this obedience, but that obedience is a byproduct of God's movement in him and his first step of new reliance on God that we see in the whale, in the big fish, if you want to be technical about it. 
We see Jonah saying, okay, God, I get the point. I want to talk to you. I'm going to pray to you. I'm going to reconnect with you. I'm going to re-engage with your grace. I'm going to pray. And then he gets barfed up on the beach and goes on for the second step of his repentance. See, for all of us, including the Assyrian king, the first step of repentance is a step towards reconnecting with God. And this is what the Assyrian king did. Before he said, okay, listen, I'm going to go down the list of things I've got to stop doing. His first commitment was to pray and to humble himself and to fast and to put on sackcloth and ashes and return to a sense of dependence on God. Eventually, he would take other steps, but first there was the heart pursuit of God. Now, before we move too far past Jonah's efforts, we have to recognize how difficult it would have been to speak truth to such a violent culture. Nineveh and the Assyrians were cruel people whom Jonah hated. And this likely is what kept him from wanting to go to them in the first place, his hatred. But because the Assyrians were so cruel, there was a component of it where Jonah would have been afraid for his own life. Historians tell us that the Assyrians, they practiced a flaying of their enemies which means they would actually peel their skin off of them before they died. Sometimes they did unbelievably, unspeakably cruel things. And these were the things that Jews had been forced to endure from their neighboring empire, and this is why Jonah hated them so. And so on one level, Jonah certainly would have been like, I'm not going to go talk to these people. I don't like them. But on another level, imagine being the guy who had to come and talk to a violent culture and tell them they needed to repent. Imagine how fearful that would make you. Social ostracizing, which is our greatest fear, would have been the least of Jonah's fears. We go to our culture and we say, hey, this is what Jesus says, and they go, you're, a, you're an archaic backwoods, wrong side of history, loser who trusted stupid spiritual things. And we go, oh, we're being marginalized. Jonah is like, I'm going to get flayed if I go do this. I think all of us have to recognize that fear for us is really a protection of our own idolatry. In Jonah's case, he feared for his safety or he feared for the supremacy of his nation. Jonah's obedience to the Lord required him to trust the truth of God's word. And like Jonah, our role is to call others to follow God. And our role is to trust God in our lives to produce change in ourselves and others. Fear or distrust of God is at the root of what we find life in. It's our idolatry. We think that we know what's best. Or we don't care what God's perspective is on the subjects we're facing. And therefore, following Jesus is difficult because at the root of following Christ is trusting the Lord, even when every emotion in you says to do otherwise. And so repentance for us sometimes is merely a crying out to God and saying, help me, help me. The first step may just be tearing off your robe and laying in the dirt saying, I know I'm wrong. I don't know what to do. It's reminiscent of what happened in Mark chapter 9 when a man with a sick child came to Jesus and heard that Jesus could heal and asked Jesus, 
you know, if you could heal my daughter, and Jesus says, hey, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes this is all we have, but that's enough. Sometimes that's all we have is just to get off our throne, which would be symbolic of our control of our lives, to take off that which we found identity in and just lay there for a little while in the dust and ashes and say, God, I'm sorry, help me, help me in my unbelief. What do I do? A, A Catholic monk by the name of Thomas Merton once wrote this famously. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. In the Assyrian king's case, step one was a move towards God. And practically, I'd like to suggest that for the Christian, what you're actually repenting from is your determination to find life apart from God. The gospel is the promise that God has forgiven our sins, that we might move closer to him and find true joy in knowing him and bringing him glory. And when we find ourselves caught in our sins and our struggles, we often have determined that we aren't going to pursue our soul's delight in God, but instead our own methodologies of need maintenance. So step one, in our case, is rediscovering the joy of God's presence in your life. And that means being near his means of grace. It means saying to ourselves, I'm going to be in the places where God will feed my soul. That includes church. But hear this clearly. Committing to being at church without being there to grow closer to God the other days of the week is not an act of contrition. I want to make sure you hear me, so I'm going to say it again. Committing to being at church without being there to grow closer to God the other six days of the week is not an act of contrition. Often, it's another way of trying to self-justify oneself before God. Okay, God, I'm going to do the good things. I'm going to go to church every week. But the purpose of going to church is that he would fill you again so that you might live a full life in his presence every day, every hour, every minute. This isn't a checkbox that you just say, hey, you know, God will be happy as long as I check the boxes. And one of them is go to church. A lot of us grew up that way. Just felt like God had a scorecard, and this is how you do it. Some of us grew up in churches that would have taught differently, but we still found our way into other checkboxes, like, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to study and know theology. Well, gritting your teeth and saying you're going to be disciplined in memorizing Bible verses or reading books on theology isn't repentance either, unless the aim is to know him through those things. You see, only in his presence by grace, experiencing his love, Will we ever grow in our desire to love God? I I have mentioned way too many times over the years that I'm just an enormous West Virginia sports fan. We call ourselves Mountaineer Maniacs. And we have a couple of coaches, a football coach and a basketball coach, that 
from a distance don't look like very nice guys. Um, I don't know that a lot of football and basketball coaches on TV look like very nice people, but they seem to scream bloody murder at their players. And in particular, our basketball coaches, this gargantuan man, six foot five, close to 350 in weight. And man, when you see him on TV, his face is beat red and he's yelling at players. And you'd think that the players, you, why in the world would you play for this guy? But before every game, you, something you don't see on TV, Bob Huggins, the head coach of West Virginia, has every player come by and he hugs them. And he tells them that he loves them. And they say off the court, he's a completely different guy. He's like a nuts when he gets on the basketball court. And because they know him, they're able to hear what he's saying to them. Even though from our standpoint, it's like, that just sounds weird. And I would never be a part of something like that. But apparently, if there's intimacy with this guy, you begin to understand that he really is loving when he is yelling and telling them you're playing wrong and you need to do this or you need to do that. You see, grace for us is the means by which we enter into fellowship with God, intimacy with God. And it's from there that we can trust him when he says things that may actually be hard to hear. But if you're going to take a first step of repentance, it has to be into the love of God. I'm going to draw near to God. John Owen says this, the great Puritan. Paul tells us, that God in his love chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy and without blame before him. It all begins in the love of God and ends in our love to him. This is what the eternal love of God aims to produce in us. See, repentance requires a first step. Second thing I'll share with you this morning is this. Uh, Repentance reveals the majesty of the divine Verses 8 through 10 read in Jonah chapter 3, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When When you describe people as being just rotten to the core evil, cruel and vicious, like our description today of the Assyrian Empire. And then we hear that God was angry, a fierce anger. There's rarely a person that doesn't go good. I'm really glad God's angry about that. I mean, would you really be happy if upon looking at the Holocaust, God's attitude was, I'm not angry about it. I wish they wouldn't do that. When there is gross evil and God says, my fierce anger, and they realize this was the wrath of God was going to be poured out on them for this evil. The Assyrians didn't even think there was anything wrong with that. They're like, he's right, we're awful. We need to turn from this and maybe, maybe God will relent from his fierce anger. It's important to keep that in mind when we start talking about our own sin. Because there is something to be said, and the scriptures are full of these laments, there's something to be said of our our perspective 
that God is holy and majestic and we are sinful because it makes us appreciative of the mercy and the grace that God delivers to us. You see, in our repentance, in our own recognition of who we are in light of the holy God, in our own lack of reducing our sin to really, oh, it's not that bad a sin. At least I'm not flaying anybody. You know, I'm not, I'm not a murderer. I've not committed adultery, at least in action. I've not stolen a lot of money just here and there at work, pens, and maybe cheating on my taxes a little bit. I, see, we, we don't have to pretend that we're not deserving of God's just wrath. We can, as Christians, go, you know what? I do deserve that. God would be completely justified in bringing his fierce anger against me, but he chooses not to. He's given us Christ. And so now we know mercy in an amazing way. And it brings out the glory of God. The king hopes God will be merciful, but only knows that God is merciful once he repents. And this is as true today as it was then. God is merciful, but our repentance opens up a new world to us. Jonah experienced this when he turned and cried out for mercy and reconnected to God. He then saw the power and mercy of God on display as never before. And once a commitment to honor God was initiated, even in a small way, the relief of forgiveness powerfully reveals to us the mercy of God. Then our next step in repentance is actually obeying as Jonah did, and it reveals something beautiful. Not only does God forgive our wickedness and sin, he mercifully shows that his will, the direction he initially called us to go in the first place, is the best thing for us. Because when we follow God, we show his attributes to other. We experience his attributes through the Spirit's movement in our lives. And we enjoy the truth of Scripture that we are the beloved, forgiven children of God. Out of concern for a shallow understanding of just how precious our salvation is. The Apostle James wrote this in James chapter 4. You adulterous people. That's a neat way to start a letter, isn't it? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, and he's not talking, for instance, about being friendly with people who are not believers. He's talking about embracing the values of the culture. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is describing what the king of Assyria is doing. He's saying, I need the mercy of God. I need to see the majesty of God. And we see the majesty of God the more we reduce ourselves. That's why the, John the Baptist said in John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. The goal of all life is that God would be seen. 
You may from time to time find yourself feeling shortchanged by this type of theology. What about me, you might ask? Well, this is what's remarkable about seeing and experiencing the glory of God. It puts all of life and its struggles into perspective. Imagine, if you will, somebody that you think is the most important person in your life, culture, world, somebody that you just idolize. You know, so, you know those questions, they say, if you could have dinner with anybody in the country, who would it be? And people pick a president or a senator or a rock star or a movie star or Bill Gates, you know, somebody that they totally think would be an amazing experience. The Pope. I want to sit and have dinner with this person. The hope would be that you'd get to that particular meeting and that they would actually be a nice person. Imagine if you sat down with that person you thought was so amazing and they were so encouraging and they said, I want to be your friend and I want to encourage you and mentor you and how can I be a part of your life? And all of a sudden every day they're texting you and they're now all of a sudden the most important person in the world and your world is, is now on your tail and they're saying, how you doing? Just checking in. Man, I'm proud of the work you're doing. I'm proud of who you are. Imagine what that would be like. You'd feel the sense of, of value. Well, and you'd wonder, what else do I really need? And this is ultimately what the gospel is about. It's about us seeing God as great. And part of our problem is the, that we want and long for lesser things than God because we can't conceive in our mind that he is as, as wonderful as he is. The problem is our sight. And the gift of the gospel is that God invites you and I into deepening relationship with him where we can see more and more of his glory. Once the king of Assyria and the people of Nineveh repented, they see the glory of God and his amazing mercy and grace. And the promise of his loving kindness creates within them, as it does us, a hunger for more and draws us deeper into fellowship with the Father, deeper in fellowship with his spirit, and a growing hunger for more understanding of his truth. And it's being drawn deeper into fellowship with Jesus that brings a clearer and a clearer understanding of his revelation in the gospel. The scriptures call that illumination. We would say if it hasn't taken place in your soul, really taken place in your soul, it would be unlikely that anybody would ever experience that through you. John Owen the Puritan says, the word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. And this is why it's actually taking root in Nineveh. Jonah has experienced this. Jonah experienced a genuine encounter with a merciful God and then went on to share that with others. Today, we're going to have communion. And during communion, we're going to ask you to come forward with a contrite heart. There may be something in your life today that you need to leave behind. You know, and, and as a first act, you just come to communion and say, Lord, I know this is wrong. I confess it to you, and by your grace, I'm going to walk away from it, whatever it might be. It might be something that you just have to toss aside. It could be a relationship. It could be something that you have valued more than him. But you're not doing it so that you can earn his love. You're doing it so that it will get out of the way. 
As Jonah even said in chapter 2, when we cling to worthless idols, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. And today, during communion, our elders are going to be up front here. And as the scriptures say, if you call on the elders, and we're here, and you come to us and say, I'd like you to anoint me with oil and pray for me, the Bible says that God will move in your life powerfully and bring healing. And so as our elders are up here during communion and you need prayer today, maybe it's prayer for your marriage. Maybe it's prayer for your own heart. Please, approach us. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. Today, what I'd like to do is pray and then we're going to institute communion and and have a time to close our service of singing and just ministry and prayer here at the front of the chapel. And if there's something you need to pray about, even if you don't want to be anointed with oil, just come forward and say, would you pray for us about this? Let's go before the Lord together as a church this morning. Father, we're in the heart of a 24-hour season of prayer as a church. Um, Thank you. Thank you for the 50 to 60 people that signed up to take a half hour to pray for the people of our church and the ministry of our church and for your movement in our lives. Father, I thank you for the the pleasure and the privilege to be with brothers and sisters who are mutually encouraging each other that we are all struggling in this life. Father, there are men and women here today that have been holding on tightly to something that has been keeping them from enjoying you. And today, they need to just take their first step of saying, I want to re-engage with you in fellowship. They've abandoned just being with you and enjoying you. And and as such, they've lost their love for you. They've lost any desire. So I pray, God, that today you'd rekindle that love as they come to you and symbolically in sackcloth and ashes just admit they need you. They need you every hour. Lord, we pray for today's time at your table that communion wouldn't just be a ritual we go through but for many it would be an encounter with the glorious reality of